You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone's evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourners and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. And verse 6 is, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. It will be helpful for you today, as it usually is, to have your Bibles open to the passage. Try to spend a minute or so just in between what the Lord has to say from us and to separate it between what He has to say and what I have to say by that 60 seconds of time to give you a chance to really reflect on God's Word before I try to do some explanation of it. If you've been a Christian uh, for any length of time, you've probably entertained some kind of thought like this. I'm not sure it's worth remaining faithful. Non-Christians seem to be getting along okay. In fact, some of them are getting along better than I am. So why would I continue to serve the Lord? Or I see evildoers prosper, and I'm not prospering, so this is kind of a waste of my time. If you've had any of those thoughts, then you're in the company of Malachi's congregation. And you can see it immediately if you look at chapter 2, verse 17 with me. You can see their questions. Their, Malachi's coming. He's coming to this group of people in a congregation and he's he's coming to the people of God and he's their preacher and he's coming and they're asking these kinds of questions. Um, They're saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. In other words, they're looking around and they see that the evil people prosper. So they're just coming to this conclusion. I guess the Lord likes them because they seem to be prospering. Or they take advantage of people and then they ask this question, where is the God of justice? I mean, if we can see that things are going on that shouldn't be going on and we can judge that, then where is God at this particular point? 
And so those are the kinds of questions that are being addressed or being asked in the congregation at this particular point in Malachi's message. So Malachi's congregation, remember, they've come out of Babylon. They've come back in from exile into Jerusalem, and, but they're still surrounded by these national powers. And these national powers are godless nations. And all these godless nations are serving either no God or some other God, and they seem to be prospering. But here, Israel, God's own people, they're sort of these second-class citizens. Nobody really cares about them. They're, they're the doormat of the Middle Eastern world at that particular particular point. And they look around and they see that evil people are prospering and they just assume that I guess God's blessing these people and they the justice they anticipate never materializes. The the shady businessman who lands the contract even though everybody knows he's a crook. Uh, the wild teenager or college student who seems to have all the fun but yet never suffers any of the consequences. Uh, the person who lies or tells half-truths to gain an advantage, and yet there's really never, nobody ever finds it out. So they're frustrated. Their, their faith has been eroded, and it's moving towards frustration in Malachi's congregation. And this frustration boils over into now questioning God. And as we've seen throughout the series, questioning God is this repetitive chorus sung by Malachi's congregation, it represents this, this sour attitude. Something like, God, we don't like your job performance. I mean, if we're handing out grades on how to run the universe, you're not passing right now. Or, or God, when it comes to us, when, when you come to us and you start questioning our sour attitude, instead of you questioning us, we're going to question you. Instead of you putting on us, us on trial, we're going to put you on trial. And you, you've seen it all the way through here. And you see it through the whole, all, the, all four chapters is that when God comes to address his people about their attitude, about their actions, instead of getting some sort of receptivity, it's always the stiff arm. And it's always, no, God, now you sit down and we get to question you. That's the attitude that's happening here. And the sour attitude, if you look in chapter 3, verse 14, it, this sour attitude about how God is running things leads them to this conclusion. Chapter 3, verse 14, it's vain to serve God. It's just a waste of our time. We thought it was valuable. We thought it was worthwhile. Maybe it was good in the past. But now it's just vanity if we serve God. This is what the congregation is saying. So in Malachi's congregation, there's this blended pride and arrogance and ignorance that has actually worn God out. Imagine that. Chapter 2, verse 17. Imagine the preacher showing up on a Sunday morning. And he says, I have a direct message from the Lord from you, to you today. And everybody leans forward. Okay, he's got a word. And the preacher says, here's what God says. You are wearing me out. I'm getting tired of you all. I'm getting tired of being put on trial for your mistakes. You're, you're wearing me out. And so my question this morning is how does God address this sour attitude at this particular point? 
What's Malachi's message as his the pastor to this congregation who's constantly asking these questions and wearing God out and wondering where he is and wondering how he's running the universe and mostly thinking they could run their little universe a lot better than God's currently running the universe. I think he does this in three ways. Number one, he states that he's coming. That's chapter three, verse one. And then he states the manner in which he is coming. That's chapter 3, verse 2 through 5. And then he ends with this absolute promise in verse 6. So he first says, I'm coming. And then when he solidifies that he's coming, then he says, I'm coming in a particular manner. We'll talk about that. And then he finishes with this absolute sovereign promise in verse 6. So let's take a look at those each in their turn. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold. That, that's, a, that's an exclamation point at the beginning. It's the way of the preacher to slap the pulpit. In case anybody's sleeping, he's saying, okay, behold, pay attention. This, this is important. Behold, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant. This is now a second messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So first, I'm sending out a messenger before me. He's going to prepare a way for my arrival. And if you know this from the, the New Testament readings, perhaps, that, that there, in the New Testament times, when a VIP was going to come to your city, a very important person, some dignitary, a king, a governor was coming to your city, someone would come to that city, and because there wasn't good highways or good roadways, they'd try to make straight the way for the VIP. And when they got to the city, after they've done, done the road work, They'd come as sort of an advanced team and they'd be preparing everybody saying, hey, this very important person is just about ready to arrive to your city. And God's saying, I'm going to send somebody. I'm going to send an advanced team. So before I get there, you're going to know I'm on my way. And if you look in chapter four, verse five, Malachi just doesn't identify this person as a messenger. He says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord coming. So somebody, somebody an advanced team is going to come. Somebody who's going to make a way for the Lord himself. And he's going to be like Elijah. And we know who this is. This one man advanced team is John the Baptist. And the reason we know that is because Jesus tells us that in Matthew chapter 11. As John the Baptist's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he says this, this is the one whom it is written. And then he quotes Malachi. I will send my messenger ahead of you. I will prepare your way before you. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah that was to come. So. The first response is, I'm coming. And before I come, I'm going to send this advanced team. And he's going to make sure the way is ready for me to come. And we know, because the times that we live in, that one-man advanced team was John the Baptist. Then second, notice, the Lord himself will come to his temple. And then he is a messenger. This is the second messenger. 
And he's a messenger of the covenant. The Lord himself will come. So there's a first messenger and then the Lord himself, who is the second messenger, will come to his temple. And he is the messenger of the covenant. Now, we could stop right here because this is like a deep vein of riches. It's like, I don't know if you could, if you dig up a treasure and then you pull up the treasure. And then as you pull up the first treasure, you go, there's another treasure. So you dig up another treasure and you go, there's another treasure. And we could stay digging up this treasure here for a long time. The Lord is coming to his temple. You remember the temple. This is the intersection. This is, this is the vertical and the horizontal meeting. This is where God and man meets. And the Lord himself is coming into his temple. So this second messenger, he's going to be the intersection between God and man. And we know that person is Jesus because Jesus says you can tear down this temple and I will rebuild it. I will rebuild it in three days. In other words, I'm coming back and the temple is now obsolete. And now I'm the intersection between all of humanity and God himself. Or he's a messenger of the covenant. And this is, again, a huge vein. We could keep spending our time here. He's bringing all the way to these Old Testament covenant promises. He's saying, I'm going to be the messenger that's carrying the weight of all of these Old Testament promises. The promises made to Abraham that Abraham would have a a land and a people. And in this land and through this people, all the nations of the world would be blessed. He's carrying the weight of that covenant. He's carrying the weight of the covenant made to Moses. Moses, who saved people out of slavery and actually brought them to the edge of the promised land and told them, this is how you should live by giving them the Ten Commandments and the law. He's carrying the weight of Abraham. He's carrying the weight of Moses. He's carrying the weight of David, that when you enter the promised land, you need a king, somebody who could rule over you. So who is the Abraham? Who is the Moses? Who is the David to come? That is Jesus. He's uniquely fulfilling all of these things. But I don't have time to really talk about those things. The thing that I really want to focus on, and I don't know that it's even the most important thing in the text, is that Malachi's congregation is complaining of what? They're complaining there's no justice. And God's saying, well, I'm going to come and I'm going to make sure justice happens. But what is he describing here? He's describing an event that's going to happen 450 years later. Malachi's congregation was making the mistake of expecting to see all of God's justice right here, right now. In their lifetime, and if they don't see it, they get frustrated. And they say, well, I guess God's not operating right now, or he's certainly distanced, or he's not doing it the way I would do. But God says, I'm planning the fullness of my justice in the future, and for God, that's no problem. But it's a big problem for Malachi's congregation, because they're not sharing God's eternal perspective. And I think most of you can understand this. It's as if, if they're saying, well, If I don't see God's justice right here, right now, then what good is it? 
I mean, if I'm not seeing justice, if I'm seeing these evil people succeed and I don't see God intervene right now, then what good is it? What good is it to to trust God? Maybe living faithfully is a waste of time. And I would say if you're inclined to have that attitude yourself, if 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 all that really counts for you is what only happens in your lifetime, it's going to be difficult for you to remain faithful. Let me say that again. If all that really matters to you is what happens within your lifetime, it's going to be difficult to remain faithful. But see, Malachi as the preacher is trying to lift them up and say, God's got some eternal plan. And if you could just see that plan, you would know, you would trust God. But they, they've somehow lost sight of the plan. They've lost sight of God's movement through history. And they can't see it right here, right now. So they're getting frustrated. And I wonder if Malachi's congregation could somehow be lifted up from 450 B.C. and brought to Christ hanging on the cross. And they've been complaining all the way on the journey. Where is justice? Where is justice? And God ushers them into in front of the cross saying, here's justice. God dying for people questioning God like you. And you could transport them back then. What kind of attitude adjustment might they have? Okay, no more questions. I mean, I may not see it now, but I can trust that God is working all things together for good. And it may not happen in my lifetime, but I can trust that he's bringing all things together. And in the end, when I see him face to face, I'm not going to have any more questions. I'm just going to have praise of what God has done. And I'm going to be so thankful I didn't get my way. Maybe a few of you need the same reminder. I know I have. See, see today, Christ is still there opening wide the gates of heaven. Saying, Anyone who wants to come in, come in. Now's the time. This is the day for salvation. But there will be a day that he will return and there will be a final judgment. And I think when God has that final judgment, he's not going to need your opinion on what should happen. Nor mine. So until then, until that day, even if it's 450 years later, You can trust God. He's putting things together uniquely just for you to bring things about just like he wants. And you can trust, even though it's very hard at sometimes, you can say, I'm going to trust God that he's in control and that he's got a good way. And we can learn that, I think, from Malachi's question or the questions that Malachi is answering from his own Congregation, you can remain faithful. So he's coming. Number two, let's look at the manner in which he comes. Verse two, who can endure the coming of his uh, the, endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? 
Uh-oh. Why? Because he's like a refiner's fire. He will sit like a refiner and purify silver. He's going to purify the sons of Levi, meaning he's going to purify everyone who's called the son of God. And he's going to refine them like gold and silver. And then I will draw near for you to, to you, verse five, for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, adulterers, liars, those who oppress people, those who thrust, thrust aside the sojourner, the foreigner, those who do not fear me. Look at verse four, I mean, chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. When all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So the Lord is coming, and he's coming in two different ways. One is a refiner's fire, and one is a consuming fire. Everyone will meet the Lord as a fire. And you will either meet him as a refiner's fire, or you will meet him as a consuming fire, according to Malachi. Notice there's no third option. I would opt for a third option here. But, but when you meet the Lord, one way in which you're going to meet him is, is a fire. And maybe it's stating the obvious, but if your flesh has ever met a fire, what's been in, immediately involved with that? Pain. First, the refiner's fire. Notice it's very interesting illustration. What would happen? He sits like a refiner. And so in those days, if you want to refine silver, the refiner would sit at a stool and he would in this crucible, he'd have silver and underneath he'd have this hot fire that he could adjust the temperature of. And he's looking into the crucible, into the silver, and he's turning the heat up just enough so the impurities in the silver would bubble up to the top. So the real silver is going to always fall to the bottom and the impurities are coming up. And then very carefully, the refiner would scrape off the top, what's called dross, and he'd remove that without removing any of the silver and then readjust the flame to get more impurities. And keep doing that and keep doing that until he had pure silver. And how would the refiner know when he had pure silver, when all the dross is gone? The answer is that the, the, the very top of the silver would liquefy quickly into a mirror and the refiner would always know when it's pure when he saw his reflection. So you can make the obvious applications. Jesus is turning up the flame. He's drawing things off until he looks at you or he looks at me and he sees. He sees a reflection of himself. Colossians, I mean, uh, Colossians chapter three, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Don't lie to each other. You've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on a new self, which is renewed in the knowledge and the image 
of the Creator. So, so Jesus comes like a refiner to those who have trusted in Him. And He says, Paul, I'm putting you in the crucible. This is one way you're going to meet me. Yes, you're going to meet me by grace, but I'm putting you in this crucible and I'm going to start turning up the fire, Paul. And when I turn up the fire, I want you to know that what I'm boiling out is anger or rage or idolatry or greed or lust or any of those other things that well up in my heart. And he says, I've got to scrape those away. So when I look at you, I see myself. That's God's plan for everyone who would trust in him. The refiner's fire is painful, but it doesn't consume. It purifies. How firm a foundation. When through fiery trials thy pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume, and thy gold to refine. Maybe you're here this morning as a Christian, and you say, yeah, Paul, but I'm tired of the refiner's fire. I don't know how much more heat I can take. And I understand that. And and I would say to you that you can trust God. That you know God has a great plan and he's working it out. And there isn't a circumstance. There's not an event. There's not something that's happened that's by any means a mistake. It's all happened in some way that when you get to him, you'll say, Thank you, Lord, that that got rid of something in me that maybe no other way it could have happened. And as difficult as that was, I can trust in you. And we can travel that path with great courage because he's traveled it himself. Then Malachi offers this strong warning. He is a, you will meet him as a fire, either a refining fire or a consuming fire. Chapter 4, verse 1, behold, or pay attention. Again, he's slapping the pulpit saying, wake up. The day is coming. Listen to the description. The day is going to be like a burning oven. It'll be a day that sets them ablaze. It's a day that's going to leave nothing behind, not a branch, not a root. Verse 5, I'm going to draw near for judgment. If you don't meet the Lord as a refining fire, you will meet him as a consuming fire. There is no third option. So, so there's no more serious question to ask. Have I placed my faith completely in Christ who can bring me through the fire? Or am I holding on to something else that eventually is going to be consumed and burned up? Which I think leads to this final question and our final point. 
if you're saying, I want to make sure I'm in the refiner's fire and I'm not in the consuming fire, how can I make sure I'm moving from the consuming fire to the refining fire? I want to make sure that I'm in that particular place. And this is so excellent, verse 6. For the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, if you're a child of Jacob, you're not going to be consumed. You're going to be refined, but you're not going to be consumed. And so I I think this is uh, so interesting. Why is it that Malachi would say, you, O child of Jacob? Why wouldn't he say child of Abraham? That would seem to me the more natural conclusion, because everything sort of goes back to Abraham and usually say you're a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham or a child of Abraham. But somehow Malachi decides, I'm going to say child of Jacob. Why would he say if you're a child of Jacob, you can still trust that you won't be consumed? What is Jacob, Genesis 37, what is Jacob usually known as? What character trait does Jacob usually have? He's a deceiver. Remember that? God promised him blessings, and instead of waiting on God, what did Jacob do? He stole it himself. So he steals from the Lord, he steals from his own father, he steals from his brother, and then he runs away. And he starts this business in another countryman, country, and he's the worst businessman because he cheats everybody he knows. He tells lies or he tells half-truths and he gets away with it and his flocks grow. He's a complete evildoer, both in the eyes of God and in the eyes of man. And God says, if you're a son of Jacob and you've trusted in me, I'm going to keep my covenant. So this is what I hear in that. Any sorry sinner can come to Christ. You can be you can cheat God. You can steal from God. You can steal from your father. You can steal from your brother. You can run away. You can tell half half truths. You can tell lies. You can get away with it. And if you repent and say, I see that's the wrong way. I want to come to God. How do I know God's going to take me? Because he's the God of Jacob. He's the God of deceivers. He's the God of adulterers. He's the God of people who have oppressed other people. He's the God of the sorriest sinner like me. And so I can be sure the God of the covenant who's going to keep that person will also keep me. Amen. That's what makes me certain of God's love. He loves the worst kinds of people in the Bible. So I know I'm just like them. I'm the worst kind of people right now. So God's love can flow towards me if I say I'm going to submit myself to the refiner's fire. It's not just for people who are like that. It's for people who are like that that say, I need to go a different way. And the way to go is with Christ. And now I step out of the consuming fire. But what do I step into? I step into another fire. But but it's not fatal. 
It's not a consuming fire. It's a gracious fire. It's a fire that at the very end, when you would see me, you could see Christ. It's incredible. Everybody meets the Lord as a fire. It's either a consuming fire or a refining fire. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, here's the chance to move. To gladly move out of the way of the consuming fire and saying, really, no matter what you've done, you can qualify because of Jesus. And if you're here and you're tired of the refining fire, it's a difficult load that you're carrying maybe. Here is a chance to come and and to receive mercy again and receive grace and and to, to hear the Lord say, I love you. I'm for you. You can trust me even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. I'm pulling all things together that in the end you would come to me and say, Lord, thank you for all those days.